Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, Pole position is back. Alina, can you explain? So today we're going to be commemorating the death of Vitor Pilecki, which occurred on the 25th of, uh, 25th of May, 1948. And I'm honoured to welcome Jack Fairweather, who is a former war reporter and an author who's written books like A War of Choice. But most recently he published a book on Vitor Pilecki called The Volunteer, which has won the Costa Book Award. Welcome, Jack. Hi, thanks for having me. How was lockdown? How are you coping? Well, as I'm sure you both know, lockdown has elements of the writer's life to, to it. So um, it's uh, being locked away in a room uh, is, is something I'm quite used to. Um, however, that said, I was in the middle of doing a book tour, telling people about um, about this remarkable man. So I'm, I'm sad not to be not to be sharing his story as widely as I could. Well, hopefully we're going to be able to solve a bit of that, that kind of problem, because we've got loads of questions for you and we're going to be talking about him. So let's start off with what inspired you to write a book about, I mean, this incredible, absolutely incredible man, Vitor Pilecki, because he's barely known beyond the Polish community. I, I totally, and my first reaction on hearing his story was, you know, can this be true? How is it possible? And why have I not heard about this man before? Um, it was about 10 years ago that I first came across his story. Um, I met up with a war reporter friend of mine. We'd been covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and were both transitioning out of war zones. He had gone for a tour in Auschwitz as part of his journey and had heard about a uh, resistance cell in the camp and um, that was such a shock to me I think for a lot of people outside Poland um, when they think about Auschwitz they know it by what it became that terrible death factory for Europe's Jews um, the idea that there was a sort of earlier camp a concentration camp for Poles is is quite new and um, I was shocked by the idea of resistance being possible in a place like Auschwitz. Um, it was still the case that back then, 10 years ago, there was still no translation of Paletsky's sort of main, main report. And um, it was only a few years later um, in, uh, in 2012 that um, um, this, uh, the 1945 report was 
translated and I got to sort of identify who was the cell leader of the resistance in in Auschwitz. And once I started finding out more about uh, Vitor Pilecki, I, I just knew I had to tell his story, um, that huge injustice as to why his story was not known more widely, the, just the unbelievable tale of daring, courage, and, and intrigue, um, which, uh, which is the story of his life. Um, so that's sort of, that was what inspired me and got me going. So let's start right at the beginning. So he was born on the 13th of May 1901 in what was the Russian Empire. Tell us more about his life before the Second World War. So um, Vitor Paletsky before World War II was a gentleman farmer in eastern Poland. He um, came from the uh, sort of minor nobility um, in the area. He was a devout Catholic. He was a reserve officer in the Polish cavalry. Um, he was married, had two little kids. And I think one of the elements that I that drew me to Pilecki's story was that I, but for World War II, he might have ended up his days as a, you know, a small farmer, community activist, you know, a man of faith and, and uh, sort of deep social commitment, um, but, but not one of the great war heroes of World War II. And I think understanding what that transition was that he went through, you know, what would push this man from a seemingly ordinary life um, into, into the extraordinary um, is, um, is really fascinating because I think it offers something for us to connect with in, in his story. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, when we try and understand the man's motivations, um, it's, uh, we want to sort of connect with him in his, in his earlier life. So the Germans invade Poland on the 1st of September 1939. Where was he at this point? Um, he had been called up with his unit and they had gone on, um, boarded their troop transports and um, were riding to meet the, the German panzer divisions as they entered Poland. Um, it was, you know, one of those one of the facts of geography that he had to travel, you know, almost three times the distance uh, to get to the, uh, the point of contact uh, than the Germans who were um, crossing the, the border between uh, the, the West Poland's western border. So he and his men, I mean, they were forced marching for several days. Um, they were pretty exhausted and tired by the time they got into position. And, um, you know, they had to face the, the German blitzkrieg, which, as we know, was devastatingly effective during the campaign. Um, Pletsky and his men were caught um, in a rearguard action. Um, his unit was, um, was devastated and he then started sort of partisan uh, guerrilla warfare for several weeks um, until it became clear that the, the situation was hopeless. Um, and um, a lot at that time, you know, the Polish military was disbanding um, and many were um, thinking about how then to resist the German occupation and Pilecki was right at the, at the 
center of those of that of those thoughts he traveled to warsaw and um began his resistance work set up a cell with a colleague of his so poland is now defeated and carved up between germany and the soviet union what does poletsky do at this point so he's um he um is in warsaw um he arranges to meet up with a group of uh, fellow resistors. Um, it's, um, I mean, it's a remarkable scene. Warsaw was subject to an absolute devastating bombing campaign after Guernica was one of the you know, first instances of a major city being uh, indiscriminately bombed. Um, um, a huge amount of the housing stocks devastated, there's no power and water and, um, you know, Pletsky and his men um, have to sort of navigate curfew um, across Poland. Um, there are thousands of Polish nationals being rounded up, some of them summarily executed. Um, the figures are not precise, but it seems that, you know, up to 50,000 Polish nationals were shot in the first four months of the invasion. I'm mean, just an absolutely staggering number, um, which uh, sort of gives a sense of this, you know, brutal, brutal occupation imposed by the, imposed by the Germans. Um, and Polesky and his, and this small group decided in Warsaw to, to begin fighting back. Um, he was not alone in this. There were multiple cells springing up across Warsaw, across, across the country, different sort of groups coming together. Many were, um, you know, were not very disciplined or sort of understandably wishing to sort of fight back at once. Um, and um, as a result, there was a, a, lot, a lot of reprisals and Pletsky realized that he and his men would have to sort of hold back gather their resources and um, really sort of get to learn about what the Germans were up to. And um, that was also, as it turned out, the, the idea of the main underground leader in Warsaw at the time, um, the man who was to sort of, who brought together all these groups um, called uh, Stefan Rovetsky. And um, he saw his task as really sort of gathering intelligence on the German occupation, um, both to begin to think about how to fight back against it, but also to share that information with, with um, allies in the West, with Britain and France. Um, he wanted to sort of encourage them to take action to support Poland and stories of brutality and the sort of shocking nature of the occupation would, would be really helpful in keeping Poland um, in, in their minds as, um, as they themselves struggled with um, the early stages of the war. Let's fast forward to spring 1940, because we're going to start talking about Auschwitz, which is probably the most key point uh, of this conversation. So it starts to function on the 14th of June 1940. Nobody knows what this place really, truly is yet. Talk us through his decision, because he does. He decides to go into Auschwitz. I mean, this is an amazing decision to enter the concentration camp. How did he go about it, and why did he decide to do it? Um, well, that is, that's a great question. You know, my book is called The Volunteer, which 
sometimes gives us the impression that, you know, that the underground leadership said, who wants to go to Auschwitz? And he sort of held up his hand enthusiastically. Um, in actual fact, it was um, a really difficult decision for him. Auschwitz was uh, sort of inaugurated in May 1940. Um, the first prisoners arrived in, uh, Polish prisoners arrived in June. Um, it was designed for to repress Poland and um, little was really known about what was happening inside beyond a few rumors from a few released prisoners uh, of particular brutality in the camp. And um, the underground leadership, Rovetsky, decided that they needed to find out more about what was happening inside this camp. Um, and um, as part of this sort of intelligence gathering mission. And he turned to, turned to Paletsky um, as a man, you know, capable of pulling off this mission. Paletsky, by this stage, he'd been in this sort of early cell in Warsaw. Um, part of his job um, for the cell was as a recruiter. He had this really fantastic way with other people. He was a great judge of character. He was very inspiring when he spoke to young men and women to join the resistance, both in terms of getting them to sort of risk their lives um, in the name of Poland, but also to sort of ensure that they didn't sort of waste their lives in heedless acts of resistance. Um, in fact, he was sort of nicknamed Nanny of, uh, of his group. And of, of course, those are qualities that would be really useful for any fact-finding mission to Auschwitz. Um, but of course, how do you get into Auschwitz? Um, you know, he, um, you, you, know, you couldn't just sort of walk up to the front gates. Paletsky hit upon this idea of positioning himself in a part of Warsaw that um, was going to be subject to a German roundup. Um, Paletsky's um, group had contacts in um, the elements of the Polish police force that had been retained by the Germans and who could give tip-offs about these big roundups, um, which basically were, as they sound, the Germans would seal off an area of the city and just sort of start dragging um, military-aged men off the streets to, um, to, to incarcerate them, to send them to forced labor or to concentration camps. And uh, so Pelosi got this tip-off there was going to be one in August, and um, just to give you a you know a sense of how difficult this decision was for him, um, you know he'd um, he'd just been reunited with his wife and kids who had fled their home in um, eastern Poland um, to come to central Poland to, to um, Pelski's parents-in-law. Um, you know he would be. You know, as underground member on this mission would be exposing them to huge danger. Um, he was going to be leaving behind his network of men that he built up and to whom he was such a sort of important figure. And um, that first roundup came and went because he decided he couldn't make up his mind whether or not to do it. And it was only um, the following month in September that he sort of summoned uh, the nerve to place you know place himself uh, in in a, an apartment in an area he knew was going to be um, raided by the germans 
And so that takes us to just this extraordinary moment in the story where he is sitting in this apartment building. Um, it's his sister-in-law's flat. He's sitting there listening to the German trucks pull up outside. And then he is the Germans breaking into the building, um, ordering out men um, to gather outside and the door bursts open and there they are for him and he steps into captivity. And, um, you know, this was a scene I really wanted to tell in depth in the book. And um, it was just a real joy and honor to discover that um, there was a witness to this scene. Um, it was that the flat he was sitting in was his uh, sister-in-law's and his nephew, um, a man called Marek Ostrovsky, um, was been three years old at the time of the roundup. Um, he was still alive, uh, is still alive, uh, when I, and um, I got to meet him and take him back to that apartment because incredibly that apartment still stands. Um, it wasn't destroyed in the Warsaw Uprising and we walked around um walked around the different rooms and he told me um he sort of recounted his mother's memories of that morning but then he had his own really special memory that i think only he could have had and that was just at that moment that the germans are bursting in pletsky's got his jacket on um Marek's mom was at the door letting them in. Um, Marek remembered how Paletsky reached down and picked up his teddy bear that had fallen on the floor and handed it to him. And, um, and that for me just spoke so much of um, what Paletsky was about, that in that moment of maximum drama and tension, when you think he would only be thinking about himself, he was able to spot the little three-year-old boy looking scared on his bed and hand him his teddy bear to console him. That's incredible. Um, what does the camp look like when he gets there? So it's quite, so, so for listeners who have um, been to the camp, it's, it's, um, it's, it's quite different. Um, it was quite different in its, in its first inception. Um, there were a lot less buildings, um, for one thing, it had been a, uh, used as a horse barracks. So um, some of the buildings, you know, were, were there um, two-story. Several of the buildings were single-story. Um, there wasn't the, there wasn't the, the, the double line of um, barbed wire fencing or the electric fencing. Um, uh, that, that, came, that came later. Um, the roll call square in the center of the camp was much, much bigger, had not been built over. Um, you know, Paletsky arrived at night and um, he um, describes, I think, in some of, you know, some of his most exceptional writing that just the absolute shocking brutality of of his arrival. Of course, he, unlike everyone, all the other prisoners who were, seized on that morning um he had an idea of what was in store um but even then um he found it just off off the charts um as he and the other prisoners were dragged from the 
trains beaten, um, 10 men were summarily executed um, right in front of him. And then they're sort of driven in, into the camp through the gates. So that Arbat Makhrai gate was there um, at, that, at that time. Um, and then they're stripped and shaved. Um, Jewish prisoners are identified by their circumcisions and set upon with a special fury. Um, although at this stage, it is still a camp. It is, you know, it is the camp for Polish nationals. Um, and there was no greater plan to exterminate um, the country's Jews at, at that point. Um, and, you know, he describes it like stepping into another world, like stepping into hell. And um, his first few days in the camp, uh, you know, he's he's walking around dazed, um, sort of, un, you know, sort of struggling like so many prisoners arriving in Auschwitz to accept that that level of violence and brutality was possible. Um, his purpose in Auschwitz, you've mentioned, was to gather intelligence and start a resistance movement. How did he go about doing this? So, so I think his, you know, his first thing that he had to do was just survive. And, you know, I, it took him, took him, you know, a week or so to really find his, his bearings. Um, prisoners were sent to do like murderous, um, labor details around the camp they were on starvation rations of you know often less than a thousand calories a day and subject to sort of continual hazing by the german prisoners known as capos who were the functionaries who controlled the camp for the ss um Paletsky with a stroke of good luck and a, a bit of initiative was able to land a job working indoors briefly. And, you know, that allowed him to begin to take stock. And um, that was the point where he began reaching out to the other prisoners. Um, now, Paletsky doesn't describe his, um, you know, that moment of, connecting with other prisoners, but I was able to track down a testimony in which um, one of his early recruits describes the incredible moment when Paletsky taps him on the shoulder and leads him to one side. Um, prisoners were allowed to gather um, just before uh, the evening lockdown um, outside their barracks um, and they would often meet in a big huddle um, to exchange food or gossips um, and uh, the German capos would be patrolling. Um, it was, you know, a, a time of brief respite. It was still a time of fear because the, the Germans planted inf uh, informers or um, paid informers with bread and food and special, um, special treats um, to grass up um, each other, so um, it, you had to be really careful. Persky took aside this young man and said, "Do you want to join the underground?" And um, the young man, the reason I particularly like this anecdote, you know, looked at Paletsky and said, to paraphrase, "Are you nuts? Look at us. We are in. How can we resist the Germans in a place like this?" In some ways, you know, it's the, that same reaction that I had upon learning the story. And you know, how is it possible to to do it? And then um, the 
this recruit begins to realize something. One, that Pletsky's for real, that he really is planning to build up an underground in the camp. Um, but then he realizes that, you know, Pletsky has entrusted him with this secret that he could, if he wanted to, use against Pletsky. He could chop him to one of those capos um, patrolling the square for some bread or a, or a safer job indoors. Um, but he didn't because he realized that Pletsky had trusted him and that trust showed that something greater than themselves could endure in the camp. And so he said yes to Poletsky and um, you know, the two men hugged. And um, that was in some ways the start of the underground. Um, Poletsky was to do this dozens and dozens of times <clears throat> in the camp and um you know each time exposing himself to a huge amount of danger because anyone he spoke to about the underground could you know try and use that knowledge to save their lives and i think it's one of the most extraordinary facts about Pletsky's underground that for the hundreds of men um that he gathered together to resist the nazis in auschwitz um not one of them ever betrayed him and um, I think that really speaks to both Paletsky as a leader, as a, you know, a man, an inspirer of confidence, um, but also just of that need uh, for trust, for hope that, that he was able to offer so many prisoners in Auschwitz. He nearly dies. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Doesn't he? Um, he doesn't nearly die. That, that, first, that first autumn um, when he... Um, he has that brief moment of um, working indoors um, in a, you know, you know, he gets a job as a stove fitter briefly and then he finds a, um, a, um, another detail that's demolishing a house nearby where he can sort of ha harbor his strength. But then he's placed in this brutal work detail and, um, you know, he describes... Um, returning to the camp he's sort of working in a warehouse unloading supplies um where they have to sort of run with 100 pound bags of cement and it's just uh lift girders and just general building supplies um and he just describes walking back to the camp and he knows if he falls down he will be set upon by the capos and, and finished off um and he describes 
coming in and out of consciousness, just say, you know, just willing himself to get back to the camp in order to sort of fall asleep and then rise and do it all over again the next day. Um, and, you know, I found that really, you know, really affecting uh, reading his, his account and the account of so many prisoners who were brought to the very edge of human endurance by, by what was happening in the camp. So let's talk us, talk us through the decision and the actual escape itself. We were able to track down um, that first report. Um, it turned out that it made its way all the way to London and it was just sitting in the archives of the Polish Underground Study, Study Trust, and uh, which is this amazing um, archive of uh, Polish underground material that was um, saved after the war. Um, We'll perhaps come on to come come on to that story, but suffice to say that I got a call from my researcher in London one evening um, to say, Jack, I've found Paletsky's report, and I think one of the reasons why it was such a powerful moment for for us was that um, Paletsky couldn't write anything down in the camp, so he had had his first messenger memorize it. Uh, this word for word uh, report, um, this oral report. And um, so the words that we discovered in, uh, in, the, in this archive in London were pretty much Paletsky's own words. And this is what he had to say, please, for the love of God, bomb Auschwitz, um, even if it means killing everyone in the camp, because what's happening here is so terrible, it has to end. Um, and this was just really stunning to me. You know, Paletsky was calling for the bombing of Auschwitz years before it became part of a public debate in among Allied commanders. And um, we were able to then find what happened to that report, how it was passed on from by the Polish government in exile to um, to the RAF commands, and they debated fairly seriously whether or not they should bomb Auschwitz. Um, and you know, surely one of history's great mice beans had you know what would have happened had Paletsky's report been acted upon at that moment. Um, and the, what happened then over the next two and a half years of Pletsky's incarceration was that he continued to get out messages to the Allies. Um, pretty much every message um, carried a request for the Allies to take action. Um, sometimes it would involve, he asked them to sort of airdrop weapons in or drop in a parachute air brigade of commandos um he was just trying different ideas to see what might be possible and um, um one of the reasons why his story is so historically important is that each one of these reports described a new step um on the road towards the death factory that auschwitz was to become Paletsky described um, the brutal treatment of Polish prisoners, then the attempts to euthanize sick prisoners. He described the arrival of Soviet POWs and the first experiments in gassing those prisoners. And, and then, of course, he describes the Holocaust itself. And, you know, Paletsky, I think, 
helps us see how the Nazi leadership was able to conceive of and implement um, mass murder on an industrial scale. And, um, you know, his reports, you know, just, you know, are heartbreaking for that, for that reason. If any one of them had registered uh, with those who read them in London, we might be talking about a very different um, history of Auschwitz. But um, for reasons I go into in the book, you know, his reports didn't, didn't spur action. And so Palecki, you know, he really discovers this um, after about two years in the camp. He, um, a prisoner arrives who comes from the underground leadership itself in Warsaw. And um, Petsky tracks him down and says, you know, what's happened to my reports? You know, what, you know, what's, you know, when are we going to take action? And the man says, oh, you know, we've got all your reports, but you know, we're not focused on Auschwitz at all. We've got other issues to deal with. Um, and, you know, Petsky, you know, it's like a sucker punch to him. Um, you know, he picks himself up from that shock and resolves to escape himself despite the great dangers in the hope that he can rally a force to attack the camp. Um, just a sort of classic Paletsky moment where, you know, in that maximum um, moment of uh, sort of fear and um, doubt, he finds the strength to turn that into into action to something positive. Um, so he begins to plan his own escape. Um, and, um, you know, that became a real centerpiece of, of the book. Paletsky describes it in just in lovely detail and um, brilliantly. One of his fellow escapers, he escaped with two other prisoners, also left a memoir. So um, it was something I could really... Um, you know, write about in great detail by cross-referencing their two accounts and then um, also sort of recreating the escape um, myself for the, for the research. Um, my, uh, with uh, my research master and I, we, we found the spot where he escaped from the camp. It was a, a civilian bakery that was staffed by um, prisoners, um, Paletsky, arranged for him and the other men to um to switch switch units to the bakery um and it, from there we we tried our best to follow in his footsteps we you know we left at the same time as he had done early hours of the morning in in late april and then used his the clues he gives us in the text to recreate his footsteps and um you know, I think, um, you know, our, we would then show up in little uh, villages and, and towns and try and track down older residents to ask them about what, what the place was like um, during the wartime. And it happened on a, on a few occasions that we would, um, we would meet families that had actually sheltered Paletsky and the escapers just the most you know, just incredible to be able to find you know that oral history um you know, that living history right before us um 
the house where the safe house he finally reached at the end of his escape um the um the owner of that house um had been a, a child when Paletsky and his men arrived there and you know she showed us around the house she made us tea and uh, sandwiches and we sat at the table where Paletsky and the fellow uh his fellow escapers sat and um I think as a biographer you're always chasing after um the subject of your of your dreams as it were and that was one of those moments where I actually felt like I'd finally caught up with Paletsky um at that table um he was to write his first history of the resistance in Auschwitz, his first attempt to get his head around what had happened in Auschwitz. And it was incredibly powerful to sit at that same table um, with someone who remembered him sitting there and, um, and you know, share in, share in the moment. His escape was successful. Um, he returned to Warsaw on the 23rd of August, 1943. What does he do when he gets there? So his escape was successful. Um, and I think um, it really is insight into his thinking um, that, you know, no sooner had he found a safe place to hide out um, whilst um, uh, the SS are sort of conducting a search for him, then he's already trying to arrange for a force to attack Auschwitz. Um, he goes to the um, leadership in Krakow. Um, they don't believe his story. Um, and not the first time um, that, this, <laughs> that this was to happen. Um, they fear that he might be a German agent provocateur who is, um, they can't understand how any prisoner can escape from Auschwitz. Um, he frustrated, he then goes to Warsaw and, you know, then begins to see what is happening, you know, across, you know, across the, the war. And um, this is in autumn of 1943 and the war is already decisively turned against the Germans at this point um, in the Eastern Front. The Russians have broken through and it appears that um, a Soviet occupation of Poland may be looming, um, which of course um, spells disaster for for Poland. Um, so there's a lot of debate about how to prepare for the Soviet occupation when or to or whether to rise up against the germans before the russians arrive and you know what's happening in auschwitz is just not you know it's not it's not the primary focus of the underground they are thinking about the struggle for national survival at that stage and you know paletsky he writes another report this time you know in much greater detail um and then you know, is forced to accept the reality of the situation, which is um, that they've got to expend all of their energy throwing off the shackles of the German occupation and trying to stake a claim for independence before the Russians come. And that's the, that's the backdrop then for the events of the Warsaw Uprising. So he, he does participate in the Warsaw Uprising, doesn't he, on the 1st of August, 1944? 
Um, he does. He's um, he's actually had already um, agreed to um, join a underground cell that was going to potentially resist the Russians in the event of a of the Soviet occupation, and had been ordered to sort of hold back and you know prepare for whatever came next. But of course, Paletsky, um you know, wasn't wasn't going to do that. He and one of his um, fellow escapers end up in a unit that's right in the sort of thick of the fighting in the heart of Warsaw. And he's, um, he um, lives through that cataclysmic battle, um, which sees, you know, vast swathes of the city destroyed, um, tens and tens of thousands of people um, um, killed in the fighting and and ultimately defeat at the hands of the Germans. Um, you know, there's, you know, this particularly tragic element to the, to the story in that, um, those, you know, that particular, you know, tragic element to the Warsaw Uprising in that the Soviets had reached the outskirts of the um, city and, um, of course, that was the whole point of the uprising, that just as the Russians arrived, um, the Polish underground wanted to sort of take part in driving out the Germans and thereby, um, yeah, through that act of ind- independence, stake, stake their right to exist. Um, but um, the Soviets arrived, but then they didn't proceed to, um, to help um, in any way at all. So... Um, the underground was ultimately crushed. Plesky goes, is captured, uh, surrenders with the rest and goes into captivity again. And um, he sees out the, most of the rest of the war in, uh, in German concentration camps um, and is finally liberated by the, the US military at a, in a camp outside um, in Bavaria, um, in Murnau, and, and is then faced by that choice facing every pole at that time um you know the country poland is occupied by the soviet forces and yet um nazi germany is defeated does he go back to fight um against the the soviets and um of course that is his ultimate resolution and um that sets the stage for the final sort of tragic um, episode of his life. He fights with Undeaders in Italy and he decides after the war to return back to Poland and he knows exactly what's waiting for him there. Let's talk about that fateful day, that fateful day where he actually gets arrested. Talk us through what happened. Um, So, um, you know, he's created an underground cell in Warsaw, um, this time to spy on and report on the atrocities of the Soviet occupation and pretty much the same thing that he was doing against the the Germans. Whilst we were celebrating VE Day and the end of the war, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Poland in particular, was subject to a a brutal repression um, that in many ways was um, as devastating as anything that happened during the war. Um, tens of thousands of underground members um, like Paletsky were being rounded up for 
incarceration. Hundreds were being executed um, summarily. It was you know, a time of massive unrest, lawlessness, hunger, and, um, and of course, brutal Soviet-backed repression in the name of communism. And Paletsky, um, you know, his cell is operating, trying to raise awareness in the West as to what is happening. And he, um, his group is infiltrated um, or by a, a, by a sort of communist informer and it leads to his arrest. He heads home, heads back to an apartment, a, a safe apartment um, one, uh, one evening and he's picked up by two plainclothes men and led to um, the head of the... Polish secret police's headquarters um, in Warsaw and then subjected to months of brutal interrogation and torture. And then finally um, a show trial um, and in which he is given a death sentence for crimes against the, the communist regime. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really brutal end to his story, um, but even amazingly in that setting, in that trial, one of his reported things that he said um, to the courtroom when he was asked if he had anything to say was that he had uh, lived his life, um, no, you know, trying to... Um, yeah, he lived his life hoping to, uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to paraphrase it. Um, he lived his life um, so that he would be happy when it would, in the moment of its ending. In other words, he'd lived his life with you know, courage and conviction and would not do anything differently. And um, uh, so, um, so ends his his life, but then, of course, the story of what happened to um, his legacy um, begins because that's it's at this point that um, the communist authorities try and repress his story, succeed in repressing his story, and um, and so begins the struggle by some brilliant Polish historians, by his family, to reclaim their father, you know, Pilecki's legacy. Jack, I want to say thank you so much for coming on board with us and talking to us about this incredibly remarkable man, Witold Pilecki, who went through one stage of hell, the Warsaw Uprising, fighting in Italy, to then come back to communist Poland to go back into hell a second time and unfortunately not surviving any of it. So thank you so much. Uh, uh, thank you. My, my pleasure. Join us a bit later on when we will be talking to Gilad Jaffe. We promised he'd come back to talk to you about the archaeology of Jerusalem, and he has. It's great. Down the pub, we will be discussing the most important moment in history. Um, a moment is being defined as something less than a week, so it can't be a long event. We've got some great choices coming up on that, actually. And then tomorrow, we will be talking to Gary Powers Jr., all about his father's experiences as a spy plane pilot um, and of being shot down over the Soviet Union. That's a really fascinating talk. You can now nominate history hack for an award.
if you go to britishpodcastawards.com you can nominate us for a listener's choice award uh, you have to do your vote by the 6th of july 2020 uh, and they will announce the winner at the british podcast awards on saturday the 11th of july 2020 uh, so if you wouldn't mind we'd really appreciate it there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.